1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Your company and your team are succeeding. At least we hope so. And we think that's a great thing. And your performance is good on all dimensions. And what we want to say today is now is the time to be vigilant. Well, why? That's because you need to keep your team alert and you need to be vigilant about the signs of change before the change overwhelms you or before things go wrong. And so my guest today, Lynn Hurstein, has over 30 years of experience in brand marketing, and he's led custom client events and brand consulting projects. And he's also served as the strategic vision behind the annual Brand Manage Camp conferences, named a must-tend by, a Ford, by Forbes. Now, prior to that, Lynn innovated, managed, and grew brands at companies such as Campbell Soup, Coca-Cola, and Nabisco. And in addition to that, since 2015, Lynn has also served as a reserve deputy sheriff in Colorado. And it's in this volunteer position that he works up to 850 hours a year as a state certified peace officer on the patrol team. And I might add, for free. Inspired to make a positive contribution to safety and the well being of the citizens of Douglas County in Colorado, Lynn really helps create better relationships between the police and the community. Now, what's interesting for today is that Lynn has taken his lens of law enforcement training and has applied that to some really pretty cool insights that he thinks business leaders need to see to improve performance and safeguard their success through vigilance. His book, Be Vigilant, Strategies to Stop Complacency, Increase Performance, and Improve Success – and you can find out more at him, about him at Lynn Hurstein, H-E-R-S-T-E-I-N com. And Lynn, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Wanda. It's really great to be here.
1: It's a pleasure. This is um, a fascinating book, I have to say. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But tell me first, why? Why do you care about this topic about vigilance?
2: Well, so I've been in in marketing and business and entrepreneurship for over 30 years, as you mentioned, and the last 19 or 20 years, I've been producing the annual Brand Managed Camp conference. During that time, I worked with a ton of speakers and authors and business gurus, and I started to understand that there's a lot out there that helps us become successful. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of advice. There's a lot of people out there who are in the business of helping us become successful. When I got into law enforcement, I started learning about complacency and I started learning about the dangers of complacency and what brings complacency on. I started realizing that nobody talks about what we do once we get to the level of success. How do we protect that success? And oh, by the way, the more successful we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more we have to lose. So that's why I got so interested in this topic. And that's why I think it's so relevant to, to business and life.
1: Okay. So tell me what you mean in law enforcement about being complacent and the more you have to lose. Just fill that story out a little bit for me.
2: Sure. Yeah. When I embarked on this law enforcement career, this was something that I was not looking to do my entire life. It was something that I wanted to start giving back to the community. This opportunity came along and I came at it thinking that I was going to be completely different than anything I'd ever done before, which in a lot of ways it was. But when I got into the academy and I started learning one of the first things that we were taught was this idea that complacency kills a lot of law enforcement you know we watch the movies and we watch tv and everything is, it seems so exciting the reality is a lot of what goes on in law enforcement day to day is pretty routine and most of it turns out just fine that has a way of potentially lulling us into overconfidence and a little bit of self-satisfaction and that's where things become dangerous so we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that complacency kills and this is kind of the idea that, that really opened my eyes because I started thinking, you know what? Complacency kills in law enforcement. It kills brands. It kills businesses. It kills organizations and teams. It kills personal relationships. It is dangerous in every aspect of our life where we are experiencing success.
1: Okay. Now I see in the organizations that I work with, particularly the teams and the leaders that I work with, They'll work really, really hard to get through a rough patch and then they feel like they've succeeded. Like the hit the numbers, the culture's in the right place, the customers are happy, the product rolled out, whatever it is, we're in a good place. And then kind of stay static for a long time until they've slipped back down the curve. So you're seeing the same thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we see this all the time. And the reality is that it's easy to be vigilant when things are going wrong, when things are tough. You know? So we've gone through a period in, in the world recently where you know, it's way easier to be vigilant. I always say, you, know, you don't have to worry about complacency with startups who are you know, bootstrapping and working out of their parents' garage and maxing out their credit cards. That's not where you worry about complacency. Where you worry about complacency is where you've experienced success. And the problem is that our human nature is to want to be complacent. This it's comfortable. It makes us feel good. We achieve success and we just, we kind of want to sit back and enjoy it. And that's, that's okay. That's okay. But this book and, and everything I talk about is how do we understand that? How do we recognize that? And how do we put things into our lives and our business that help us identify and fight it?
1: Yeah. It's um, one of the phenomena that I have always observed in organizations is we have this big push to make a change, we make the change, we wrap all of our alignment and all of our systems together to make that change successful. And we talk a big deal about, you know, strategy and alignment and creates execution and all those sorts of things. But the moment you get everything kind of nicely aligned, you know, the metrics are in place, the customers are in place, products are in place, people are in place, et cetera. Get it aligned. And then it doesn't want to change. So some Force comes in from the side and you tend to say, oh, that's just noise. Never mind. We'll carry on. And pretty soon you find we can't change and it's too late for change. And it seems to me exactly as you're saying that complacency created a lot by having this you know perfectly aligned system actually makes it hard for us to change. All right. So enough for my pontificating, I want to hear about your. Well, I want to ask first, why do you, we did that? Right? Let me ask what about your experiences in police Academy. So I love there was a beginning of the book. You talked about dissecting videotapes. Tell us about the story in which you learned in doing that.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot we learned in doing that. And, and this is, you know, one of the lessons that I actually is in the book is, is drawn out of that. So we spent a lot of time watching video and looking at things to see what went right? What went wrong? What can we do differently? Um, where where do we see the potential errors that people maybe didn't see when they were going through it at the time? Mm-hmm. And you know, over and over again, the the feeling that comes about. And this is the same thing when we do case studies of you know, Blockbuster or Sears or you know, Circuit City or whatever you want to do a, a business that that was big and failed. You know, we watch these videos and you sit there and you think, you know, how could that have happened? How could they have? Let that happen. How you know, and and it's hard to even see at the time until you realize that this is this is easy for all of us. This is this is something that happens to all of us. And so you know, if the biggest companies and the best trained people and all the people in the world can have this befell them, and they can you know go down this path where complacency can steal their success, you know, you walk away from that thinking, wow, this can happen to anybody. This can happen to me. You know, as vigilant as I was sitting in the police academy, you know, taking notes, watching videos, as soon as you put on your boots and and you get on the street, the complacency starts to settle in because what you learn is that that complacency, you know, I hate using this terminology based on what's happened recently, but it is kind of like a virus. It sits there in the background. It's just waiting for the right environment. Unfortunately, that environment is success that allows it to grow. And so that's that's what, you know, we learned so many things from watching those videos. Um, but one of the most important things to understand from watching those videos is this can happen to me, right? Yeah. This is not just something that's happening out there to other people who are dumb or lazy or unaware. This is a real threat.
1: Yeah. I want to ask a little more about why you think complacency is such a common phenomena. You said success breeds complacency. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are there other factors that drive it, drive complacency besides success? Yeah,
2: sure, I mean, you know, it's easy to boil it down to, you know, success. Basically, you know, one of the things to do is kind of define what complacency is because I think a lot of people mm-hmm. if you ask them what complacency is, they will say laziness a lot mm-hmm. of times. But complacency is not laziness. Complacency is an overconfidence, a self-satisfaction, a smugness that develops from past success that serves to make us unaware of potential threats or dangers. And the difference between complacency and laziness is that laziness is a choice, right? Laziness is I have the ability to do something. I just don't want to exert the effort right now to yeah. do it. Like I could clean the house, but I'd rather sit on the couch and drink a beer. That's, that's laziness. I'm super good at that. But the flip side of it, complacency is not typically a choice. It's something that happens behind the scenes, and that's what makes it so insidious is we don't even realize it's happening. It's not a choice. So once you understand what complacency is, you can start looking at, okay, what are the things that drive it? And, and, and a lot of it comes from this idea of what I would call survivorship bias, okay? And survivorship bias, in a nutshell, is this feeling that because we made it past some artificial gate, Right. That because of what we did, we made it past that artificial gate. And that builds our, our overconfidence, right? So, you know, you've seen memes on Facebook, depending on your age, you've seen different memes. For me, it's memes like, you know, I survived lead paint and riding backwards in a station wagon with no seatbelts and secondhand smoke, you know, share or click like if you did too. Well, the reality is if you did not, you're not here to share or click like. Mm-hmm. And that that's what survivorship bias is, right? So when only people that make it through a certain gate, you know, are are there to talk to and to and to you know bounce ideas off of, you get this warp sense of what reality is. And so that survivorship bias and that success can lead to a lot of other things, like abuse of power, right? This is one of the things I talk about in the book, is this idea that. When you have success, you gain power, whether it's over employees or vendors or customers or whoever it is in your ecosystem that's a constituent of yours, when you have that power, it it becomes very easy to abuse that power, not in these like sinister ways that like, you know, make you evil. But if you truly step back and you ask yourself why you're doing certain things, if those whys are because we've always done it this way, or because we can, or, you know, because I said, so those are all things that are in indicators of complacency stemming from abusive power. There's a lot of other things that we talk about. One of the things you and I have chatted about is this idea of getting off the X. Well, getting yeah. off the X is about being strategically unpredictable. When we get comfortable, when we get overconfident, we also become very predictable. The more predictable we are, the more vulnerable we are to competition because they know exactly where to find us and when to find us, and they can, you know, proactively disrupt us, right? And so a lot of, you know, one of the chapters in the book, I talk about this thing called the OODA loop, which is about our decision process. How do we disrupt the decision process of our competitors? How do we speed up our own decision process? When we're not doing that, when we're sitting back and we're doing the same thing over and over in a predictable fashion, we become more vulnerable. And that is another indicator of complacency, There's a lot more we can go through, but each one of these, you know, at the macro level comes back to a level of success, but each one of these things are are offshoots of that.
1: It's its own own version of uh, success. All right. You said when we, when asked why, and you make the comment that we've always done it or because we can, or because I said, so those sound like very tough statements. And I can imagine some executives will say, I don't say that. What I just heard today, a case where someone says in a very nuanced way, because I said so, yeah. um, can you go and do that assignment? No, I'm not releasing you to go and do that assignment. Not for six months. I'm going to slow it down. You can't get there. Why? Because I'm going to slow it down because you can't <laughs> get there, which is you know, a, another way of saying because I can. Now, yeah. granted, you know, need you, but that's still not an excuse for why you're going to do it. Okay. Yeah.
2: These, right. these are all things that we have to be really honest with ourselves mm-hmm. about because it's easy to warp those whys to make them sound good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you're truly honest with yourself and you step back and say, is this why something that is connected to our purpose of what we actually deliver to our constituents as opposed to selfish? Th- those are good questions to ask.
1: Right. All right. Fair enough. I think we can justify an awful lot of stuff. I want to talk about getting off the X then. So you mentioned this already, but go back to police Academy and give me the lesson from police Academy about getting off the X.
2: Sure. Yeah. So this was something that, that we learned early on in our firearms training. So one of the things that I came from, uh, you know, a, a family that grew up in kind of the suburbs of New York And, you know, we were not particularly outdoorsy and we certainly didn't have any guns or anything like that when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. And so I didn't know anything about shooting when I went to the academy. So, which was actually pretty good because they could teach me the way they wanted me to teach. They wanted to teach me. The, The interesting thing about the way they taught us to shoot was that we don't stand still, we're always moving. So when we draw a weapon, we take a step. When we have to reload, we take another step. When there's a lull in the action, we take a step. We're always moving. The reason why we move comes back to this thing that I talked about earlier, which is the OODA loop. Mm-hmm. And OODA is a, an acronym. It is O-O-D-A. It stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And it comes from, uh, you know, there was this guy, Colonel John Boyd, who was in the U.S. Air Force and flew uh, during the Korean War. And after that, he helped develop this concept of what is our decision process with this eye towards how do we win more Mm dogfights? How do we, you know, how do we win these dogfights? And it really came down to agility, right? And so what, what happens is when we make a decision, the first thing we do is we observe what's going on, we orient ourselves, we decide, and then we act. As we receive new information midway through that process, our brain goes back to the beginning, You know, think about as you're, you know, waiting at a stop sign and you look right and left and nobody's coming and you're about to go and all of a sudden somebody you catch somebody coming from the outside. You've got new information now. You're back to the beginning again. Is it safe for me? You know, you had already made that decision but you hadn't acted yet and now you're going back. When we are able to change that information, we can slow down our competition. We send them signals that they have to reorient themselves to, and that's what we learned about getting off the X in the police academy every time i move now my opponent has to reorient themselves as to where i am slows them down buys me time and that's that's a big part of what we do it's a big part of business too and you know a lot of times we fall into these traps where we become too predictable we are standing on the x i know i like eddie bauer clothes i know that i should never buy eddie bauer clothes for less than 50 or 60% off because the next time you know almost every week i'm going to get an offer like that they're standing firmly on the x i know that these offers are coming and so that i'm able to you know time my purchases their competitors know that too we this happens to us a lot in business and in life we become comfortable we stand on that x we don't move and we become predictable
1: okay so is the secret to just not become predictable or do you have some tactics to help people get off the X?
2: Yeah, no, I have tactics (laughs) for sure. Good. Yeah. The idea is is also not to become like crazy unpredictable. The idea is to become strategically unpredictable. Right. So one of the ways that you can do that is through self-disruption. Right. So one, you know, the best type of disruption is self-disruption. So one of the things that you always want to be doing is looking at it and say, how can we self-disrupt our own industry, right? So that we keep the narrative going. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like to talk about, you know, when I talk about complacency, people want to talk about Blockbuster and Netflix right. and how, you know, Blockbuster owned the video rental market and Netflix came in and Blockbuster could have, you know, bought them. And everybody knows that story. Yeah. The more interesting thing to me about that story is what happened next. So after Netflix won that, they did not just sit around and do nothing. So they went know, they started by disrupting the industry by taking video rentals and moving them into the mail, right? Mm -hmm. But then they self-disrupted themselves and went to streaming. Mm -hmm. And then they self-disrupted again and went to content production. And now everybody's making their own content. And then they continue. The next thing is going to be gaming and whatever's next. Every time they do that, they are getting off the X which makes their competition now figure out, okay, how do we do streaming? Okay, how do we do our own content production? When they're spending their time thinking about how do they catch up to Netflix, that allows Netflix to stay ahead of the competition.
1: Provided Netflix doesn't sit on the X and get complacent.
2: Exactly, which they have not done yet, right? They have not done yet.
1: Right. Rather stunningly so, because I would have predicted they would have gone out watching the blockbuster Netflix subscription and you're right right I would have predicted they wouldn't have moved cuz that's what most companies don't do is they don't self disrupt
2: yeah i mean, think about like costco uh, or sam's you know either one of them you know you shop there it's it's been the same experience for a long time right it's a it's a warehouse club you go in you get your chicken and whatever you want and and you get checked out very recently they started you know moving down this path where now they're doing self checkout right where you can walk around and you can actually scan your items as you're going through the store using their app or whatever, and then check out, you know, as you leave, Sam's is doing that. Right. So once they do it, how long do you think it is before Costco does it? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but they're playing catch up now they have to catch up to the experience that Sam's is doing. So that's kind of the goal. The goal is to not only be understanding where all these changes can be coming from, but getting there first. Okay.
1: All right, now, then, what if you make a disruptive, strategic disruptive move and you realize it was the wrong move? Mm-hmm. Do you pivot back then to the X or do you just pivot on to someplace else?
2: Yeah, it, I mean, the, the answer is going to be, as, as any good consultant would tell you, it depends. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, the idea is it is better to act than to not act, right? Okay. And so, you know, even if it's the wrong act, you know, fail quickly and fail cheaply. And most likely what's going to happen is you're going to learn something along the way that doesn't bring you back to that original X that still has you moving. You know, one of the analogies I use for people who enjoy sports, whatever sport it is, is, you know, so whether it's football and I know you spent a lot of time uh, in in, in Europe, in the UK, football means something different. Whatever football it is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> at, at one point, someone's got a ball and they're running towards a goal, right? And if you're the defense and that person who is running with the ball is moving in a straight line and you're across the field, it does not yeah. take a genius to figure out. Your brain immediately does the math. What angle, and what speed do I need to run at in order to intersect? That's right. very easy. When that person starts juking and moving and spinning and twirling and whatever they do, that's when you start seeing defense falling all over themselves because their body has committed, they've acted, they get new information, and they've got to change, and they move. Now, maybe you know you don't make the best juke every time, but every time you do, you're still in a better position than if you had not acted at all.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, Perfect analogy. I love it. Get off the X. Because you you don't often think about that from a strategic point of view. You think about, I have a line of sight. I go straight to my line of sight. I'm going to make a move. That's it. We sit here and reap the rewards. Get off the X. All right. I want to go to one of my personal favorites, which is about debriefing, Mm. something I think we are badly missing in corporate life. But tell me first your police academy story, and then I'm going to turn it into the business story.
2: Yeah. So this is, you know, this is something that I actually learned as I got into the job of law enforcement. So what I what figured out is you know, we have briefings and debriefings every day. Um, and you know briefings are scheduled every day right before we start our shift and we go through some things. But what I started seeing is that we were doing these debriefings very regularly, every time that we had some sort of incident something that had information in it to, to extract. And what I started to realize is we were doing these regardless of the outcome, whether they were Mm -hmm. positive or negative. And it really hit me. We had a call one day uh, there was a barricaded subject with, you know, that had um, a, a weapon and, you know, it was in the middle of the day and there was a shooting and we had to all come in and we, we, everybody did what they were supposed to do. The net-net is that the outcome was as positive as it could be. No innocent civilians or anybody else was hurt. We didn't do anything. And, you know, you would think at the end of that, we had this positive thing. Everybody's been pulled off the road. You would think that our command staff would want to get everybody back to the road as quickly as possible, but we called everybody in. Everybody went into the office and we sat and we did a debrief and we can talk about what makes a good debrief and all the things that go into that. But you know at the end of the day we did that debrief immediately after the incident and it was and it was an incident that it ended positively and I started thinking from my business life I think everybody would say that they do debriefs but if you're being honest with yourself we usually do them when things go wrong right. and we're usually looking for who to blame
1: yeah, you're usually looking for that. thing. I agree. I don't think we do debriefs very well, even when things go wrong. I think mm-hmm. we wait too late after the incident. Um, so everybody, nobody feels personal about it. I think we run a bad debrief in the first place. And I don't think we extract any lessons out of it. But we certainly don't do them, at least not in the last 30 years that I have seen, when things are going well. So we never know. Why did we have that success? What happened that created that success? And then can't repeat it quite honestly, SEM business. All right. So, Lynn, tell us how to run a good debrief, please.
2: Yeah. So, I'll give you the, the, the top couple of things you can do right away to make a difference. In the book, there are eight specific things that you can do to make uh, really good debriefs. But number one right away, like I said, is do them regardless of outcome of the project or the mission or whatever. You want to make sure that everybody understands that we're going to do these regularly. Right. And that we're going to do it regardless of outcome. And that has two, uh, you know, positive effects. Number one is just by knowing that you're going to do this afterwards, people pay more attention. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we haven't really talked about in terms of like what is vigilance and, you know, the difference between vigilance and paranoia. One of, you know, one of the big things is that vigilance is based in awareness. The more aware we are, the more present we are, the more intentional we are, the less likely we are to fall victim to complacency. So just knowing that ahead of time. Makes it easier for us to do that. But also on the back end, what that does is we are able to take those learnings from success. We don't just walk away, you know, patting ourselves on the back because a lot of times we're successful by the metrics that we used, right? But we could have been more successful or we were successful by accident or even despite ourselves, right? Or we were successful because of some fortuitous thing that happened in the marketplace. There's a lot of reasons we can be successful that have nothing to do with us. Yeah. And so, you know, when we just take a success as a, as a success and walk away, we're losing the insight of all those micro failures that we had that we can catch and fix, and all those uh, other things that we could potentially either, you know, extrapolate and do better next time and, and make our successes even grander. Or, you know, make sure that we don't go down that path that ends in failure next time.
1: Failure next time. Yeah. I, um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this in exercises I've done with teams, in watching teams do their work. They'll have a success. They won't stop to think about it. There's a lot of self-congratulation. Aren't we great? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of assumptions going around the room about why we succeeded. They encounter the exact same scenario again. Fail at it. Without understanding why we succeeded in the first place. And then you don't know what to do the next time around because you don't really know what it is that led to your success. And most of the time people miss the core components. All right. So the first thing you say do for a debrief is do it regardless of outcome. Give me at least one other tip on sure. what it takes to do a good debrief.
2: Uh, another one is to leave titles and seniority at the door. A lot of times when we do debriefs, especially since we do them most often in business to attack failures, you know, we come in, we have the most senior people with the biggest titles that, you know, pontificate on what they think went wrong and pass blame and all those things. And then we walk out of there. When we do them in law enforcement, it doesn't matter if you are the sheriff or you are a deputy with a week on the road, you come in and everybody gets a say, everybody gets to see what they saw. Everybody gets to point out where they think there might've been errors. And what you find a lot of times is the newest people have some of the most useful insights because they have not been dulled by the years of doing it the way we've always done it. Right. And so, you know, when you can do that, when you can come into a debrief and you can say, you know what, it doesn't matter who reports to who or anything like that. We leave all that at the door. Our goal is to get to what actually happened here and what we can learn from it.
1: Great. Okay. Lynn, I love that. How? How do you take a regular corporation where seniority, I mean, well, it's true in the police department too. We can't just abandon seniority. And I'm sitting in that room worried about my next promotion or my next whatever review thing. What practices are going to allow us to leave seniority at the door?
2: Well, I mean, so this stuff comes from the top down. When something like that happens, it has to come from the top down. So first and foremost is communication. Is making sure that everybody understands what the goal is here and how we're going to do it. Second thing is actually demonstrating it. Is mm-hmm. you know people learn because it happens, right? Sometimes you know a lot of this is intertwined. One of the other things I talk about in a book is is trust and how do you mm-hmm. build trust? And when you don't have trust,
0: mm-hmm. it's
2: very hard to believe things like. we're going to leave our times at the door because you're sitting there you're thinking, yeah, sure. They say that now, but when it comes time for bonus time, I'm screwed. Right. Yeah, So, you know, you, it's all intertwined and it's all part of, you know, companies that become complacent also a lot of times lose trust and you lose that benefit of the doubt. Um, So, you know, first and foremost is communication, communicating so that everybody understands it. Two is living it and demonstrating it and making sure um, that everybody sees it. And then three is making sure that that there's somebody in the room who's responsible for monitoring it, right? So inevitably, someone might step up and say, well, you know, they might interrupt somebody because they have a higher title. Somebody in the room has to have the designation to be able to say, time out, we're not doing that here where you know okay. this is this is not how we're doing it. So, you know, it's that combination of making sure everybody understands it but also having that real-time monitoring of it with someone with the power to 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 stop it. Right?
1: I think those two are where we go wrong most often in business because I think most people will say title doesn't matter, everybody's opinion is welcome, all oh, great. But then the first time you hear that comment from a junior or a newcomer or a lower title What do you do with it? Especially Mm. if it's not a comment that is immediately, obviously brilliant. Hmm. So how do you respond to it? That sets the tone for what anybody's going to say from there. And then the third one is, I rarely do we have a designated person who's officially the facilitator and can stop behaviors that are actually inconsistent with what we're trying to achieve. Just don't do it well enough. Okay. I would just
2: add one one quick thing, yep. and I know we got to go break, but okay. one quick thing, you know, you want to avoid trying to process the information and make action items right at the moment where you're debriefing, right? So, you know, one of the things you said is, you know, how to, you know, if it's not immediately brilliant or we can't make something. One big part of the debrief, at least in the initial stage, is just go through and get the feedback. Just let everybody have a say. Then you can start processing it when it all comes together. Because if you try and kind of process it one point at a time, you're never going to get that big picture. So, you know, what you want to do to make a successful debrief is let everybody get their observations out and resist the urge to process and solve things moment by moment.
1: Okay. So it's not taking action items to do or not to do or not understanding why a thing happened. It's just letting everybody speak initially. And then we go back and say, "All right, so what do we do about this?"
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's a step process for sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. Clearly, a lot more to learn, and it's in the book. Be vigilant. Strategies to stop complacency, increase performance, and improve success. Lynn, you know what I love about this is there are some counterintuitive things that you would just not think about, like getting off the X not moving in a predictable straight line always and strategically being disruptive, I just think are very interesting ways of rethinking what we're doing and how predictable we are, how complacent, how comfortable we are. My guest today, Lynn Hirschstein, as you've heard, 30 years experience in brand marketing and now this lovely book about being vigilant. We'll be right back. group and talk about career advancement and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on out of the we hope you'll join us
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you are listening to out of the comfort zone to reach dr wanda wallace or her guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Lynn Hirstein. The book we're talking about is Be Vigilant, Strategies to Stop Complacency, Improve Performance, and Safeguard Success. As you've heard thus far, Lynn is a reserve deputy sheriff in a volunteer position and spends 850 hours a year as a state-certified peace officer on the patrol train. What has what Lynn has done in this book is take the lessons that he's learned from going through the police academy and as being a law enforcement officer and say, geez, these strategies about how to stay vigilant and not get complacent are really useful for business. And I happen to agree with that based on what we said. A reminder that complacency is about awareness, not about laziness. Laziness is a choice not to do. I could do, it and I choose not to do. And complacency is I stopped being aware in some ways. And what we want to do is to make sure you stay aware because complacency kills, as Len has said already. We've talked about the strategy of getting off the X. We've talked about one of my favorites, which is debriefing. Okay, Len. connected to debriefing connected to all of it is this notion of accountability and transparency. Okay, no one would disagree with those two statements. Everyone wants to know yeah, why and how. How being the more important one.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the, you know, the how is always going to be dependent on what your industry is, what your company's like, all those types of things, but the principles are the same. And, you know, this is obviously something we've learned in law enforcement, you know, uh, body cameras, you know, all the things that have happened in the last few years, um, you know, have proven the fact that, you know, without accountability, without transparency, you lose trust. And when you lose trust, like I said before, you lose that benefit of the doubt. You know, one of the things, you know, when people are asking me to kind of understand that, I always say, you know, think about a personal relationship you've had where, you know, or maybe something with a spouse or a partner or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, you wake up in the morning and, almost whatever you say is misinterpreted. You know, you say good morning and they're like, what do you mean by that? You know, what are you trying to say? You know? And so that when you lose that benefit of the doubt it's because you've lost trust. And there's a lot of different ways you can lose trust. When we talk about the how of accountability and transparency, one of the first places that it starts with me is understanding your purpose. Okay. Mm -hmm. And making sure everybody else understands the purpose too. And you know, especially in business, your purpose is not just about making money. It can't just be about making money. It has to be like, why are you here? Why is your organization on this earth? What is your purpose? What are you trying to, what impact are you trying to make for your constituents, whether they're employees or vendors or customers or whatever they are? And how do you go about doing that? And when you have a well-articulated why, which is your purpose. When you're able to articulate your why, and we talked about some bad whys, right? Some Mm -hmm. bad whys or because I said so, because we've always done it, because I can, right? Those are bad whys. But when you can truly articulate your why and what you're trying to accomplish, it provides a context for everybody that you can then start building your accountability and transparency. So you build that purpose. You make sure everybody within your organization and outside your organization understands that purpose. And then you take a public stand, your accountability as to what you're going to do as it relates to that purpose. And then you provide transparency. You let people see your progress, good or bad, right? If, if you only show good progress, people don't trust you. You have to also own your mistakes, right? And say, we dropped the ball here. We are not moving as quickly as we would have liked, right? There's, you know, there's an organization that I talk about in a book that um, publishes all of their salaries, by mm-hmm. and with people's names on their website for anybody to see, this is what this person makes. That you know that is this is counterintuitive to most organizations, yep. right? They don't want anybody even talking about their salaries with their peers because they want to keep it all hidden. But they said, you know what? We are going to. They're a technology company. We are going to fix the wage gap. We're going to mm-hmm. figure out how do we provide equality and equity within our workforce so that men are not making more than women for the same job and all these things. Well, that's a great, that's a great thing. And that's a great accountability to put out there. But then they took that extra step and provided the transparency. Yeah. But you know what happened? They didn't quite close that gap as quick as they wanted. And it was very obvious because you could look year after year at those, at those wage numbers and every year they would address it. They would say, we did not do what we wanted to do. And this is why, and this is what we're doing differently. Mm -hmm. That builds trust, right? That builds, you know, a, a partnership that people can rely on. You don't always have to succeed, but you have to you know, make sure that people trust you.
1: Well, you have to mean that you're doing something about it too, because you can't say year after year after year, I failed, I failed, I failed, and not take any action exactly. That doesn't go very well either. All right, I have a client who will recognize themselves in this comment, but I won't give them away, where the women are absolutely convinced on a global scale that they're underpaid relative to the men. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain they have the data to say, by and large, that's not true, but they don't publish that data. In fact, they won't give any element, any hint of that data. Mm-hmm. So every woman that I talk to in that organization is convinced she's underpaid. Whereas if I go and talk to you know various people who would have this data, they would say, no, actually, she's not. But she doesn't believe it because there is zero, 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 zero transparency. Now, I don't know that they want to go so far. I'm sure they won't go so far as publishing everybody's name and salary. But you can certainly talk about years of service, grading in the company, title, something other, band, and salary range on that band. Anything, but without the transparency, nobody believes you, even if you've got it right.
2: It's not, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than the way you stated it, because, you know, this is directly learned from my experience in law enforcement. When you have a lack of trust going into something, a lack of information is typically Mm. always viewed as negative, right? So when you don't provide that information, those women that you're talking about, not only are they convinced that the wage gap is there, but they're also convinced that that information is not being provided to them because it's being hidden from them. Mm -hmm. Right. So they automatically will assume that that lack of information has a nefarious purpose that has some sort of, you know, evil under undertow. right? Right. And so, you know, not only are you not addressing the situation by not providing transparency, but that lack of transparency feeds the lack of trust. Right. And without that information, people will fill in those gaps and they will fill in those gaps. Unfortunately, in this day and age, in the environment we live in, yeah. it is more likely than not, they will fill in those gaps with the most negative possible outlook that could exist. Right. Right.
1: Well, and we see that if you follow the trust barometers, for example, year in and year out over the last several years, that trust barometer is declining, both in terms of public service and in terms of our corporate leaders. Um And it's in a pretty bad state, for sure, if if you follow that one. But a lot of that is, again, we can't get the information to know. There is really, truly a lack of transparency. And I would also argue some places a lack of accountability for doing what we're saying we're going to do. Now, do you see any organizations get this purpose, public stand, transparency really right? You talked about the tech company. Do you have another example?
2: Sure. Sure. Patagonia is a great example. Um, they are, you know, very, very public about what their purpose is and how it relates to the environment. Um, and they are believable and trustworthy because they will come out and tell you to not buy new clothes because it's bad for the environment. Well, if their purpose was all about making money and selling the most clothes, Mm -hmm. they would not tell you that, Mm -hmm. right. That's, there's no benefit to them Mm -hmm. in that sense. Right. But because they truly can articulate their purpose, they can go off and do things like that and they are believable, mm-hmm. right? They are believable and we trust that organization that when they say they're doing things with the environment in mind, we know they are because they can show us that, you know, it's not money based. Yeah, it's right. about the environment. So that that's another great example. You know, there are other, you know, companies that are also really good at just understanding their purpose and and being able to articulate it. You know, I always tell people, you know, when, when you have conversations with people in marketing and you ask them, like, you know, what's a company with a great, you know, mission, a lot of people will tell you Disney, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you ask, you know, if I ask you off the top of your head, you know, what is, you know, what is Disney's, you know, vision, you might say, you know, to make people happy. Or something like that, yeah. and maybe at some point in time that was it. But if you actually, after we get done talking, go Google, you know, uh, the mission <laughs> of Disney, even they've kind of mucked things up. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a 500 word, you know, thing that that you know outlines every you know industry they could ever possibly pay in, play in, and defines entertainment in its most broadest sense and all those things. It's very hard to follow anymore. Right? And it does, it's not we make people happy or anything like that. But you know, it, you know, you look at Southwest. And, you know, what, you know, how they define what their purpose is and how it relates to what they do and how it relates to how they treat their employees. And another thing that I talk about in the book is autonomy and discretion and allowing your employees to build engagement in what they do by having the flexibility to do their work product, you know, with, with their own spin on it and and their own take on it. Um, That is only possible when you understand the true purpose, because you can do your own spin as long as it relates back up to the true purpose.
1: It's tied into where we're trying to go. All right, it's not yep. off track. All right, I want to go to another one that is kind of counterintuitive, and that's this notion of avoiding tunnel vision. So, mm. tell me about that one. Where, what did you learn from the police academy and law enforcement, and how does that apply to business?
2: Yeah, so one of the, you know, I, I talked about learning how to you know shoot a, a firearm. You know, one of the things that that we learned, even before we learn getting off the X, are the four rules of firearm safety, which I believe regardless of what you think about firearms, you know, wherever you are in the world, um, everybody should know the four rules okay. of firearm safety. And you should always teach your children this um, because you never know. They're not always going to be around right. you. They're going to be somewhere else. You never know. Number one is every, every gun is loaded. right? You treat every yeah. gun as loaded. Number two is you never point a firearm at something you're not willing to destroy. Mm-hmm. Number three is you keep your finger off the trigger and out of the trigger guard until uh, you're ready to fire, which drives me nuts when I watch Hollywood movies and stuff because <laughs> they're running around with their fingers on the trigger. But number four is, is the one that, that leads this, which is be aware of your target and beyond. So mm-hmm. we have to always be aware when we draw a firearm, not only what our target is, but what's behind it. Is there a school bus full of children behind that target? And what's going to happen? Those rounds don't stop. You know, They keep going a lot of times, especially if you miss. And so you have to be aware of what's. And so it avoids getting that tunnel vision. One of the things that we learn how to do is shoot with both eyes open. Um, you know, a lot of times if you were to, you know, think about how you might do it, and you re, you, know, you might close one of your eyes when you when you go to yeah. aim at something, right? Because you're trying to, you know, we all have a dominant Line-up. and a non dominant eye. We're going to close our non dominant eye. What that does is it allows us to laser focus on what we're looking at, but we lose that peripheral vision right? And that peripheral vision is what's important. So, you know, when we talk about tunnel vision, a lot of times we talk about, you know, we have two different terms. We have tunnel vision and laser focus. And we use laser focus to be positive, right? Oh, he's laser focused on success. And we use tunnel vision as negative. Reality, there's the same exact thing. There's the same exact thing. Laser focus or tunnel vision is focusing so hard on what's in front of you that you lose sight of what's around you. And none of that is good in business and in life. And it also really leads to complacency because we can get so comfortable with what we see in front of us that we can lose nice. that, you know, that vigilance, that awareness of what's going around. I talk about, um, you know, this thing I call the Roadrunner effect, you know, for people who have seen the Roadrunner cartoon and you've got Wiley Coyote, uh, always going, you know, focus on that roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, you know, is, is, you know, meets tragic circumstances every episode, but never do those tragic circumstances come from the from the from the roadrunner. They always come from something else that he never <laughs> okay, saw coming. Sorry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great analogy for anybody who has seen the Roadrunner. I'm sad a whole bunch of generations have yeah. or a whole bunch of kids in the current yeah. generation haven't seen it. But you're right.
2: Then you didn't have to yeah, it. Yeah. it.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. So tell me how do we make sure we're avoiding tunnel vision in business?
2: Yeah. So, you know, a lot, again, this gets back to awareness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that we need to do in business is we need to make sure that we have people within our organization whose job it is, or at least part of their job is to identify potential threats. You know, a lot of times in business, when I talk to, you know, when I talk to organizations and I say, tell me who your competitors are, and they're super confident about listing off their top two or three competitors. That's a big signal to me that they have become complacent because they have lost sight of. What else is out there? Where those other competitors can be coming from? If you're Coke and you think your competitor was only Pepsi and Pepsi and Coke, you know, and you lost sight of Red Bull, you lost sight of water, you lost sight of all these other things. Um, and then, you know, what happens is when that happens, eventually you're like, wow, this came out of nowhere. Well, it didn't yeah. come out of nowhere. You just didn't see it
1: until it. <laughs> it,
2: it happened. And so, you know, what I tell people is you want to have people who are looking at it for where, where is that next competition coming from? Um, And there are a lot of different places. It could be coming from actual competitors. It could be coming from, you know, regulatory or governmental things, environmental things, consumer shifts. There's a whole lot of places that your potential threats can be coming from. If you are, you know, if you were a solar provider, solar energy, you know, panel company, did you see that Tesla was going to come in and become a major player in your in your industry? Or did you just, you know, see the other people who were trying to get door door to door, you know, appointments as your competition in your in your area? So, you know, making sure that there are people in your organization that have the job of identifying threats and communicating them is a big piece of it. The other piece of it then is what we would call scenario planning, mm-hmm. is thinking about what are the potential threats and if they happen. What would we do about it? We do a lot of this in law enforcement. I have, you know, I have every everything figured out. When I'm walking into a store, what happens if this happened? What happened if that? to the point where you know, you know, it's not that you're paranoid, you know, because it's not about being fearful or paranoid. It's about being aware and being vigilant and building that into your process so that you know when these things happen, you have a plan to address them. Because what I always say, and what we say in law enforcement, is that. You know, contrary to popular belief, when a crisis happens, everybody thinks that you're going to rise to the occasion. Yeah. Right? The reality is, you are going to fall to your highest level of training.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So
2: make sure you're training, make sure you're training in your organization so that you know when things happen, when the most likely scenarios happen. You are already getting into muscle memory. You know what you're going to do. You know who's responsible. You know how to activate things. Um, Because when the actual crisis happens, if you're not ready, that's where things get murky.
1: Okay. And highest level of training presumably is not heard it once. I heard it. I talked about it. I practiced it. I've talked about it again. I've heard it again. There's a lot more to it in training than just one-time talk, one-time speech. Lynn, I love this. Um, If you think about the whole notion of avoiding tunnel vision, um, kind of knowing, I can't think how many uh, companies that I work with, when I ask the average employee, well, who do you see as your competitors? They have no idea, even when some Mm. of those employees are fairly senior. How can they possibly be thinking about the business in the most proactive way if you're not aware of who your customers are seeing as a potential source other than you? Okay. So avoiding the tunnel vision, we've talked about accountability and transparency, which starts with a sense of purpose, taking a stand and then being transparent about it. We've talked about getting off the X and we talked about debriefing, my favorite topic. What a great collection. And there are many more I should add in the book. Okay, Len, you clearly lived on out on a limb being um, going for this reserve duty officer. So what takes you out of your comfort zone?
2: What takes me out of my comfort zone? Uh-huh. Uh huh. I am constantly out of my comfort zone. I have, uh, I'm married. I have two daughters, and I have a female dog, and I'm constantly being put out of my comfort zone in terms of you know just everyday life in my household <laughs> as they grow up and as they as they mature and just you know continually trying to be uh, you know a good dad who doesn't try and solve everybody's problems. That's <laughs> that's what probably gets me out of my comfort zone most frequently. <laughs>
1: I love it. That's an honest answer. I really appreciate it. All right. My guest today is Lynn Hurstein, over 30 years' experience in brand marketing. As you hear those stories coming through in his applications from his police academy and police training, and he also runs um, the strategic vision behind the annual Brand Manage Camp conferences. The book again, Be Vigilant: Strategies to Stop Complacency, Improve Performance, and Safeguard Success. I just love this idea. You're right, Len's right, that we never think about, we think and we have success and we cheer the success and we say celebrate the success, but we don't recognize what comes next after the success, which is a bit of resting on our laurels and not getting complacent and stopping to be aware of all the things that are around us that are signaling disruption. And particularly at this moment in time when everyone is talking about the disruptive forces and the speed of change and all of those components, this book strikes me as something that is highly relevant right now at this point in time. So, Lynn, thank you for being a guest. Any last word of wisdom for our audience?
2: I would say if, if I had to sum it all up in one sentence, I would say success is not the end goal. Keeping it is. So be mm. vigilant.
1: I love that. Success is not the end goal. Keeping it is. And when the crisis comes, you're going to fail to your highest level of training. That's one of my favorites. Len, thanks for joining us. And my if pleasure. you like this, like this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast server. If you'd like to know more about how to apply these concepts and more, please join us on outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone.